0: You know, the Western church has a story, yet very complex history. And in recent years, uh, much has been brought to light about abuses done in the name of the Christian church. And for those of you who are listening here today, uh, and this might hit a bit close to home, so just a trigger warning and feel free to pause and take a moment uh, to, to process before continuing on. That's perfectly okay. You know, you have, well, this probably doesn't affect you, but all the way back to the Middle Ages, you have the Crusades that, of, that went back to the Holy City to, to take it back from the infidels. And moving on, then there's the colonization of the New World justified by the doctrine of discovery, a 15th century papal edict that sought to provide political, legal, and spiritual justification for taking land that wasn't considered non-Christian, oh, that wasn't considered Christian at the time. Then there was the transatlantic slave trade, justified by a gross misreading of scripture in many times, often. And there's the erasure here in North America of indigenous culture through residential schools, many run by Christian denominations. And more recently, the rise of Christian nationalism into public consciousness has been viewed as just another example of the dangers of the Christian religion. Now, these alone may give many people a reason to turn away from the Christian faith for its negative social impact or perceived negative impact. And maybe you're listening here today and you're wondering what is left to be redeemed in the Christian faith. Why even bother? Let me say to you that both your questions and your presence here are welcome. With all the problematic things associated with the Christian church through history, it can be easy to write off Jesus and the church but let me just say this many things have been done in the name of christianity but are not actually reflective of the values and the story of god found in scripture they are in fact more reflective of our tremendously human instincts toward uh, selfishness and greed and seeking power at the expense of others rather than the the good news of god that we hear about and read about in scripture if we take the time though, we'll also see that the uniquely Christian values that uniquely Christian values have been motivating factors for many positive things in the world. Principles of human dignity, compassion for the marginalized and the disempowered, the standard of law and the belief in the faithful stewardship of what God has entrusted to us is to be used for the good of all. Things like these have been motivating factors behind uh, the development of the modern western legal system of hospitals and medicine and and schools and education if we go back to the early church women were seen as important contributors spiritually and financially to the life of the early church at a time when very few women held publicly recognized uh, positions outside of the home against a culture that viewed uh, females and disabled children as disposable compared to able-bodied male children. The Christian church advocated for the preservation and the protection of every human life. Where the surrounding Roman and Greek culture held sexual ethics that differed whether you were a man or a woman, whether you were a free person or a slave, whether you are single or married, The Christians advocated for the same ethic to be applied to all, regardless if you are a man or a woman, married or single, free or slave. Early Protestants like John Calvin advocated for a system of checks and balances in political power that have uh, paved the way for our modern democracy, that give voice to every single constituent, even though at the time it was still limited only to males. And all this to say, this brief history lesson, is many of the things that we take for granted in our modern society are the direct result of Christians seeking to live out their faith and engage their faith in society. So, seen honestly, we can say that the Christian church has also contributed positively and made a social impact in the world. So as uh, Karin alluded, uh, introduced in the earlier in the service, we are in this We Are WCF sermon series, looking at these four phrases, and together we're, today we're looking at social impact. And what does it mean for us as a community and as individuals seeking to live this out faithfully? Well, I want wanna through the text today that we've been kind of in for these, this a lot for this past few weeks in this series, I want to draw and highlight what might characterize Jesus followers in our desire to live lives of social impact. So one, is characterized by uh, joyful service, two, by informed engagement, and three, together as God's beloved. Joyful service, informed engagement, and together as God's beloved. So in John 13, Jesus sets the example for his disciples to follow his example in serving others, even as he's about to be betrayed and begin his final hours leading up to the crucifixion. The message rendition of that text that Ryan read for us um, goes like this. This helps maybe hear it a little bit differently. In verse 14 and 16, he says, I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you ask, understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. Jesus tells this to his disciples at a meal and less than two months later, the disciples find themselves having witnessed the re- resurrected Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit coming to the church. And they take this and they embody this blessed life in, this, in the early church. And as Dr. Luke tells us in the Acts passage, here's the message version of it. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. We get a sense of joy and service, of vitality. Something was happening in the church that was worth talking about. And if this scene happened today, It would be trending on social media, racking up views on YouTube and Facebook and getting coverage on all the major news networks. The text in Acts begins with this statement, everyone was filled with awe. How many of us have ever felt that? You know, Julie and I just went to watch a Trevor Noah show at at Capital One Arena. It's the first time I've ever gone to watch a comedian. But there's, whatever, 12,000, 14,000 people sitting in awe, laughing together at something that was going on. And that was just a comedian. Can you imagine the church having that same kind of impact? Everyone was filled with awe. The Greek verb here uses the imperfect tense, which suggests an ongoing, enduring sense of love and awe, experienced by all, not just one moment. This awareness that God was in their midst, was working in their midst. Wonders and signs were taking place. Needs were being met. The church was making an impact. That was the reality of of people that had encountered the risen Jesus. In John chapter 13, there's another, the, the message continues on. And defining, I think it's coming up on the screen. There it is. You know, we often define a blessed life based on our terms we define a blessed life based on a series of inverse relationships if you think about it more comfort less suffering more stuff less scraping by more fulfilling work less boring unsatisfying work more freedom less restrictions right that's what a blessed life is according to our terms that's what it means to be happy But when we hear the words of Jesus, he says that following his example of serving others is the path to a blessed and happy life, a joy-filled life. Jesus talks about this joyful, blessed life along a different set of inverse relationships. He says, exchange your pursuit of status for Jesus' status to meet the needs of others. Exchange being served with serving. Exchange the status we build and protect for ourselves. And embrace the status of Jesus as God's beloved children. As co-heirs of God's kingdom. As fellow ambassadors for God. And realize that we have lots to offer, regardless of the nature of the work that we do. Whether it's washing feet, or caring for the poor, and the sick, and the needy. Or serving with children upstairs during the service. Or sitting in conversation with an unhoused neighbor, following Jesus' example is the path to a blessed and joyful life. Pastor and Christian activist Shane Claiborne once said, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Community is about doing the dishes. Now, doing the dishes isn't just doing the dishes. Doing the dishes is all these things that no one wants to think about. And thinks that someone else should take care of those things. But we are a community that wants to make a social impact, beginning with doing the dishes together. The first step in making an impact is finding a place to serve others with others with the joy of Christ. And we invite you to do that here together at WCF. I know we're in this in between time of pandemic. Is it safe? You know, do we wear masks? Do we elbow bump? Do we shake hands? Do we hug? Right? But we're finding, let's look for ways to serve together. You know, the Chinese military strategist, Sun Sun Wu, or Sun Tzu, as he's known in, in English, wrote in The Art of War, saying, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know not yourself nor the enemy, you will succumb in every battle. Now, that's talking about war, but even in sports, even amateur sports, Coaching staff will review uh, athlete uh, will have their athletes review game video or game analysis at, as preparation for an upcoming game against a team. In court proceedings, a good lawyer hopefully will anticipate the best arguments of the opposing team and prepares accordingly. You know, similarly, though Jesus followers were not called to win at social impact by making an impact of the world, it does help to know. What the true obstacles are that are in the way of making an impact. It helps to know the true obstacles that are before us and the opponent and the arguments that are coming at us. Otherwise, our service can be well-intended but not maximally effective. You know, as Jesus uh, shares his final meal with his friends, and before his, he begins washing the disciples' feet, we are told by John that says, Jesus knew, highlighted here on, this, on the text. Jesus knew. Jesus knew the playbook that, of the enemy. He knew the playbook that he was playing by. And Jesus knew that the real battle wasn't to prevent Judas from betraying him, even though that's probably what I would want to do. It wasn't even a really a battle against his perceived enemy, the devil, because the devil really isn't an equal opponent. To God, the God of the universe. And Jesus also knew that the real battle wasn't to get a five-star review on Yelp from his disciples for his foot-washing abilities. No, he went into the situation, or rather he arrived here as a human, took on human flesh, knowing fully the obstacle that was before him, which was the reality of sin and its curse, death. Jesus was fully informed coming into the situation of the impact that he needed to make. Jesus knew that it was a spiritual and a relational battle, not just a political one as many people hoped he would lead in. And that too is the critical path for us as Jesus' followers that hope to make an impact in the world. The Apostle Paul highlights eloquently for us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. It's up on the screen here saying, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, and on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Okay, I know this talk of weapons and warfare in a Mennonite tradition-related church is not... Maybe not kosher, but that's in the Bible, so we can read it and then take it. You know, there's no short list of injustices and abuses and needs for the church to respond to. Whether it is addressing racism or how to do reparations or acknowledging, as we did last week, the the lands that we now live and worship and, and play and gather on once belonged to the indigenous peoples who have been erased from this land Or maybe it's our efforts to alleviate education, learning loss, or homelessness, or acknowledging and or preventing sexual abuse and domestic abuse. All of these things are sad realities of the world we live in. But behind every earthly evil that we can name is a spiritual evil that followers of Christ need to be aware of, not afraid of. We can call it out for what it is. Followers of Christ hold power in these divine weapons of Christ's truth and grace and love that, as Paul says, demolishes every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You see, behind every human effort to dehumanize another person Behind every human effort to erase a group of people to wield power and seek gain at the expense of a fellow human being is an act of spiritual rebellion against the good intent of God's work in creation. Behind every act of human evil is the evil refusal to know God and to trust the God of Scripture. Behind every human institution of of oppression is a conscious or a subconscious attempt to prevent others from seeing the goodness of God. So, that is the arena that followers of Christ must engage in. Our activities and our advocacy you know, to f- help social, political, economic, or relational are- in those arenas are essential. We need to do the work there. But we can't do those things without acknowledging and engaging in the spiritual battle that prevents others from seeing and knowing the goodness of God. The key thing here is that we don't do this alone. We're not supposed to do it alone. We're not called to do this spiritual act alone. New Testament theologian Willie James Jennings says this on the work of intellectual or spiritual resistance. He says, Making sure I'm reading it here. What's at stake here is aligning the idea of resistance as a shared work. We are trying to find each other in a shared work of resistance, and this is what's missing for so many people. They want to resist oppression and injustice, resist heretical ways of thinking and immoral ways of living, but they approach it as individual resistance cultivated in self against the world. Rather, understand what I must resist And who is with me in this work of resistance it's a deep theological truth that the strength to resist doesn't come from us but from god and through the people of god together this action this engagement is not something that you are called alone to do but together as the body of christ you know a few weeks ago some members of the the, of wcf attended an event on biblical reparations And following that event, a number of you gathered at Stanton Park for a picnic to talk about what does it look like for WCF to engage in reparations. I was so excited. I didn't hear about it until after it happened. And that is what we're called to do. To discern together what does it look like for us to respond to a need that we see. The work of reparations is more than just financial compensation. See, behind it is also revealing of God's truth and love in light of generations of denying the humanity and dignity of fellow human beings. That's the reality behind it. That's the spiritual battle. That's the evil. And those who have perpetrated injustices and continue in silence deny our own humanity and shroud our knowledge of God when we deny that exists. And so we can only walk in this knowledge of God and work for justice together as a community. And this leads us to the final point about being a community of social impact. You know, being informed uh, as we engage and having a joyful attitude as we serve. These are all things that we can do. And perhaps Jesus' followers have the abilities to do them just a little bit better when we trust God's help with that but they aren't what make our impact uniquely Christian or Christ-like. You see, you don't need to follow Jesus to be informed as you engage with an issue or to have a joyful attitude as you serve. What makes our social, uh, our social impact particularly Christ-like and uniquely Christ-like is the position from which we do these things. We are a community of social impact, Because we do these things together as God's beloved. We are God's beloved. And when we understand this truth, we have a social impact because we have been spiritually impacted ourselves. We have social impact because we have been called God's beloved in Christ. You know, in John chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle John opens the chapter highlighting Jesus' love for his disciples as the motivating factor for what he's about to do. We're told, it says, having loved his own who are in the world. That's why he was about to do all these things. Here we get a glimpse of what is referred to as the selective love of God upon God's people. There seems to be a difference here between Jesus' love for his own versus God's love for the world, as we're told in John 3.16. God does love the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God's love works in the world to draw people, every human, out of the world and into this new reality of God's kingdom, to experience the selective love of God. You know, later on in the same discourse, John recalls Jesus in chapter 15 saying how the world loves its own, but Jesus loves his own. So here the object of God's love is not the lost world, but the newly formed community of God, the disciples who follow Jesus, the Messiah. Now Jesus had always loved them, and he assures them now in John chapter 13 that he will love them, he has loved them to the end. And the way that Jesus demonstrates his love for his own is by washing the disciples' feet. Now, this action is a precursor to how Jesus' action on the, to, to Jesus action on the cross eventually washes and forgives and, and secures God's forgiveness for all who respond to God, to Jesus in faith. Those who do so find that they step from the realm of the world that's loved by God and into the realm of God's family and God's kingdom. And this is the distinction for God's universal love for all and God's selective love for God's children who experience true belonging and acceptance in God through faith in Christ. Now, it's, you know, just, you know, you're saying, well, God's love, isn't it for all? It is for all, but the experience of it is different for those who are called God's beloved. It's kind of like the difference between knowing about the Olympics and participating in the Olympics. You know, when the Tokyo Olympics were going on earlier this year, most of us knew about it. The world knew about it. You might have even stayed up and followed a couple of the events. And if you are uh, an Olympics fan, maybe you'd even consider traveling to, to go to watch the events. When the Olympics were going on, everyone knew about it It was universal. And like the two images on the screen, you know, knowing about the Olympics and maybe even sitting in the stands at the Olympics is very different than participating in the Olympics. Being an Olympic athlete happens through years of preparation and going through a selection process in order for them to be able to participate in the Olympics. And those who do so successfully go often to make an impact in the world, like the gymnast Simone Biles. She took her Olympic experience with all of the glamour and success, but also all of the abuse that she and other female athletes have endured, and now is taking that and hopes to make an impact, not only on the sport, but in the world. You know, God's selective love to God's universal love is kind of like those who compete in the Olympics and those who know about the Olympics. They are both real, they are both true, but they are experienced very differently. But unlike the Olympics, everyone who benefits from God's sacrificial uh, selective love wins. You you win the greatest medal. And there are no losers and there are no records that you have to worry about being broken that you might set. There's no one that will forget your name. No one ages out of competition because God's love endures and therefore carries us to the end. And that is something incredibly secure. You know, Here at WCF, we, our desire is to be a community of social impact. That is the fruit of being a community of God's beloved. Knowing that we are God's beloved in Christ gives us an incredible strength. Our success in, in making an impact isn't measured merely by the results of our actions but by the relationship that we enjoy with the God of the universe who took action first. You know, we revel and we marvel in God's love for us in Christ as we sung about this morning. We don't wait to be spectators of God's love. We respond to the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection with faith, with humility, and with confidence. We realize that without Jesus... The hope for true and lasting change in the world is fleeting, and the enjoyment of God's love as God's beloved bears fruit in living lives of social impact, full of joyful serving, engaging in in, form, in the real battle that is before us, and we do so as God's beloved children. May we do so faithfully and joyfully, with God's help. Amen.